Welcome to WP Tonic Roundtable Podcast, where a panel of leading WordPress junkies discusses the latest WordPress and internet stories of the week. Now, on with the show with your moderator, Jonathan Denwood. Welcome back, folks, to the WP Tonic Roundtable show. This is episode 493. You can normally join us live on Facebook, but unfortunately this week, Facebook wasn't very cooperative. But obviously you're listening to this, but you normally can join us and watch this live on the WP Tonic Facebook panel. We've got a lively panel. I've got some good stories. I think it's going to be an excellent show. I'm going to let the panel quickly let themselves introduce themselves, starting with Chris. Chris, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm Chris from Lifter LMS, and I help course creators create, launch, and scale. You can find me at lifterlms.com, and I have a podcast for course creators called LMS Cast. That's great. And got my friend Sally. Sally, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Sally Getch. I'm the WP Fangirl and organizer of the East Bay WordPress Meetup in Oakland, California, or um, on Zoom at the moment. And um, I actually had a client call this week with somebody who um, heard me on this podcast and thought I sounded smart. Um, and I, I'm not sure which one was more surprising. <laughs> I don't know what, what, what does that say about the rest of us? Uh, well, there we go. Uh, I've, got my co- I've got my co-host. I've got my co-host on my first interview show, Adrian. Hi, everyone. My name's Adrian. I help small businesses launch their digital marketing strategy with our product, Groundhog. And I've got Stephen. Uh, um, Stephen, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Stephen Souter. Uh, with Zipfish.io, we make WordPress blazing fast. And I've got my friend Spencer. Spencer, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, Spencer Foreman from LaunchFlows.com. Right. And... Before we go into the uh, main stories, I want to talk about our sponsors. And our main sponsor is Kinsta. And what Kinsta? Kinsta is um, specialised WordPress hosting. I've been with them for the past couple of years. Um, really fantastic hosting, fast, reliable, reasonably priced. If you're looking to set up a learning management system or WooCommerce, they're one of the companies that you should straight away look at. Um, really customized interface, really easy to use, all the bells and whistles, one click backup. You can choose whatever version of PHP you want in the interface. Numerous little things like that that make your life as a client or you're working for a client really easy. And um, if you go over to them, look at one of their packages, choose it. And main thing is tell them that you found you found out about them on the WP Tonic show. And our other sponsor is a really interesting product um, plugin, and it's called LaunchFlows. Now, LaunchFlows customize your WooCommerce checkout experience with Alimator. And that what that basically means is you don't need code. Um, you can really produce modern-day funnels using your normal WordPress tools. And you can amaze yourself and your clients. And you can also do this not only for WooCommerce checkouts, but you can build any type of funnel using launch flows. It is quite amazing. So go over there and have a look at it. And they've offered a code as well. It's WP Tonic Rocks. Repeat that, WP Tonic Rocks. And you get 25% 
off the plugin. It's really, really amazing plugin, and I strongly advise you to go over and learn more about it. So let's go into the first stories, um, and this comes from WP Engine announcing Genesis Pro and the future of Genesis. What did you think of this one, Sally? Well, um, uh, 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 I thought that it was a little irritating that I saw this on uh, uh, saw this in my uh, feed before they uh, posted it in the Genesis Slack channel. Um, uh, uh, although it was it was more or less simultaneously, I think I happened to uh, look at the news feed first. Um, the Genesis Pro thing, I'm having a little trouble wrapping my head around the way they're rolling it out um, as as part of the hosting, because what it seems like is a really good tool for developers to, um, and it does what we've seen some other things do, in, including like providing a lot of existing block collections and making it easy to save block patterns and to customize things and also to um, decide who has access to changing and editing certain kinds of blocks? And I know you can do this um, to some degree with Elementor and and uh, Beaver Builder and other page builders. Is is kind of like choose what your clients can mess with. Um, which is all you know interesting and potentially u- useful, but they're they're rolling it out as basically add an extra thirty bucks a month to your hosting plan. Um, and you can use this at all of your sites. And I'm like, well, all of what sites? Because, uh, you know, most people don't actually want to, like, create elaborate new landing pages constantly. And uh, lots of people only have one website. It seems like it's more aimed at people who build websites. And if it's attached to your hosting, um, you know, wouldn't that mean your clients all had to get it themselves? I, I'm I'm not sure about this. So they're they're uh, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. They're trying to explain it to me. Um, much more interesting in the announcement uh, was what they're talking about with Genesis X and the kind of the next phase of the theme framework and moving into the block based themes and compatibility with the the you know full site editing and. Uh, that kind of thing, and it'll be, be it'll be a while before we see that. And you know, on the one hand, it's oh Lord, and I just you know learned how to do uh, you know the the new stuff for uh, for Gutenberg in the you know in the editor. Now there's going to be a dramatic change to the way everything is structured. But the thing is, there's going to be that dramatic change to the way everything is structured in in WordPress anyway. And and as I said when I put this in the put this in our in our slack you know it seems like they're thinking along much the same lines that uh, spencer has uh, talked about on this show many times about you know your theme is just going to be basically a place to put your blocks or or your page builder layout or or whatever it is yeah what did you think of it spencer and it's 30 dollars extra I don't have a dog in my house, but I'm hearing barking going on from one of my teenagers. Um, <clears throat> I understand why they're, they're doing they're that. They're that upset at being stuck at home, eh? <laughs> it's like it's like having a terrier living in the house. Um, the the thing that I see happening with this is that it's <clears throat> it's a natural progression of an asset that has I'm not going to say outlived its purpose, but become redundant. So, for example. Um, the method that Genesis, I think, perfected was the original spinoff of what Chris Pearson started with Thesis, which was taking blocks of PHP functions 
and using hooks and filters to build your your thing, your WordPress site, which for, you know, all of us geeky geeks, that was really fast in a world where everything else was really slow. But you flash forward some 16 years later, and now you've got page builder blocks or elementor blocks, which you can very quickly take a function and put it into a block without the need for Genesis and then just drag it all over the place. So it kind of feels a little bit like, let's take our wooden wagon wheel and figure out a way to retrofit it onto our Tesla just because we have the wooden wagon wheel. And I don't know, maybe they've got some surprises, but from what I've read, there's nothing that's new or dramatically different about what you can do with the core stuff. It's just taking the wagon wheel, putting it into you know, a new box so you can move it around. The thing that would be interesting to me would be if they went maybe with this Genesis X into a different territory. So for example, one of the areas that I think is very fascinating, we've talked about before, is the entry and exit point using a different technology. So if they worked with one of the, you know, JavaScript frameworks that allowed you to do some whiz-bang stuff, or even cooler, on the entry side of things, if they came up with some kind of cool interface that allowed you to add your data, manipulate your data, have a CRM-like experience on the back end, that would be cool. But I'm not so excited about, let's find another way to use what already works in a different format. It feels like PayPal, where you go there and it's like, Oh, I see. It's the same 1997 PayPal, but now you're trying to move everything around and make it look like it's new. There you go. Now, in, at least in 1997, PayPal didn't try to do infinite scroll on your activity yeah, page. Or have, you have to search 45 places for the thing that used to be right on the front page. Right? There you go. We reckon, Chris. I'm really excited about it. The author, David Vogelpohl, I was actually listening to his podcast this morning, which is called Press This. It's a great podcast for the WordPress community. And I've heard David talk on several occasions about what he calls the most annoying problem on the internet or in WordPress, I guess, which is like a user stepping up to WordPress and that first like starting experience, kind of that blank screen. Like, it doesn't look like the demo we saw on whatever plugin or theme site or whatever. It's like, there's just a lot to be done. And if you're not a WordPress power user, um, there's a lot of friction there. So the idea of having some like pre-done block libraries, I think is really interesting. And um, I know Genesis is old or older, you know, thing, but, you know, I think it does have an opportunity to kind of leapfrog page builders and really drive the innovation forward on on the block scene and just innovate there. And there are other, you know, companies innovating on blocks and whatnot, but I'm pretty interested to just see where it goes. All right. What about you, Stephen? I think it's always interesting to watch how um, older plugins and stuff try to adapt to this new block world. And it's always exciting to see kind of what approach are they taking, like taking like a pre-built approach, right? Like here's your pre-style template stuff, or they're going to take more of a developer-friendly approach where it's like build blocks faster using our tools. Um, I was a little bit surprised that Genesis seems to be heading in this like pre-built block because for me, I always thought of Genesis more as a developer tool to get in and build uh, a theme really fast, really quickly, you know, based on this foundation of Genesis. Mm. Um, right. but well, I think, I think that's what the Genesis X part is more aimed at, at like being able to create custom blocks and build templates based on blocks without writing code in the, yeah. in, in the I, way I, that you used to. It seems strange to me that they're 
first like real push into blocks is not developer focused. I would have thought that they would have tried to continue the narrative. Like this is mm. this is the theme for developers who want to build blocks. Like this is your well. Well, it makes project. sense because WP Engine's audience isn't developers, right? They develop. It, that's not who their audience is. Their audience is kind of a little bit lower on the totem pole in terms of technical know-how. So, and since kind of Genesis is now a product line essentially in order to, you know, differentiate themselves from other hosting companies, it makes sense that they'd want to kind of right. use and that product you know, line it, in order to make their customers onboarding experience just a little bit easier. Right. That's and it ties in point. with the purchase of Block Labs and the purchase of Atomic Blocks. And uh, so that you get a, a combination of the theme as the container for the uh, for the blocks where, you know, you've got some uh, styling to, to match those blocks and you've got a way to import, you know, all, all of the newer themes are set up so that if you want to, you can, you know, import the sample content, which has a homepage built out of blocks and, and so on and get that instantaneous. It looks, you know, it looks like the demo uh, experience. Um, if What's it, happening here is WP Engine is scratching their own itch with the with the problem with what you mentioned, Stephen, which is the blank slate. And you log into WordPress now with WP Engine, right? And it's like, all right, well, now what? And then, well, we have a product line. Look, you can just pay an extra however many dollars a month and you can just kind of import the, the theme and the blocks and it's just all ready to go. So that's that's what this is about. It's about making their customers onboarding experience easier. Yes, the, the extra charge was the weird thing to me because it seemed like if you were saying this is going to be part of your hosting package and maybe it's only part of the, you know, slightly more expensive hosting package. And that's, you know, because as Spence is always saying, what, what's your differentiator in hosting? Uh, and that's one of the differentiators. That makes sense to me. Uh, what doesn't so much make sense to me is the, well, you can have this if you pay us, you know, quite a bit extra, more than it would cost you for a plugin that had a similar kind of feature. I suppose they're, they're banking on what your time's worth. I, I have a prediction that I think where all this block madness is going, which would really make more sense, is <clears throat> if somebody could become the aggregator of the blocks that are really worth their salt, so that instead of me having to pay the pro, even if it's 29 or 39 or 49 dollars a year, for each of five different block makers, if there was a place that I could for five dollars a year get this block and five dollars get I that wish block. people would build individual blocks because, because the, I have right? I often have several block libraries installed just because right. I really like the media card block and co blocks and I really like the food and drink block and co blocks. <laughs> but you know I prefer the accordion block and the row layout block from Cadence. <laughs> And, it, it, you know, the, this kind of thing that I understand why people put them out in, in groups. They had a they had a an example already in front of them and the people who make the extensions for Elementor and Beaver Builder. And it's like, here, get 25,000 different tools for for Beaver Builder and like go nuts tinkering with them all, all day to see what, what they are instead of here. This is the most, you know, effective uh, <clears throat> block that wow. does X. This is right. the most effective block that does Y, and you can select, you know, I want a la carte blocks, damn it. Is it that yeah. hard to provide? Like, think about it. Everybody has their individual motive, but think about it in terms of the blocks, because of the Gutenberg standard, are being built the same way. Now, again, knowing a tiny bit about coding and stuff, 
I realized that the individual block authors may have a little of their own secret sauce in each of them. But if there was an aggregate marketplace, maybe, hey, I got an idea, sponsored by that company Automatic that allowed people to just get full retail value for their $5 block, I would be incentivized and I would think the other people would be incentivized on both sides of the table. As a buyer, I would gladly pay five bucks for the one form block that I really needed instead of having to buy the 52 other things and loading up my dashboard, first of all, number one. Number two, creating the same problem we're going to talk about in the third or fourth story, which is now I've got four or five or six accessory block makers that all have put all of their crap into my website just because I wanted four or five blocks. And it seems to me that we're missing an opportunity like saying there's no more like uh, grocery stores that sell one pack of gum. Everything is now Costco. You can only buy things in a bulk pack. And it just seems like we're missing well, that. That's when, that's when, you know, monetary interests class with user experience and satisfaction because there's no money in selling one-off $5 blocks. There, there would, hold on. I agree I think with there you. would be if, 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 if the, way, the way Spencer's envisioning If in the dashboard. There's money for the big players who can afford to upfront the capital in order to build that system. But for oh, one-off developers, have, there's no money in it. Hold on. There's I, money I, in selling I, a $149 product that renews annually. Hold on. I'm saying if you, if you had one block or two blocks and you got, let's say, five bucks, if Automatic would tighten up, light, loosen up their purse strings and just pass through after the, the Stripe charge or whatever, the full amount to the developer, that audience is tens of millions of people. You could make a living selling $5 blocks that were popular if you had one, right. I mean, I, I think what, what Spencer is saying is somebody like Automatic should create a, the marketplace. And then the, for the block developers, it could be worthwhile because there's a big audience there and, and they could sell if you and just then break you're up your get library. 5,000 form blocks, right? Like, but, but at least that doesn't can, make any yeah. sense because there's every developer is going to be like, I want my $5 block in there. There's, there's already 5,000. There's, there's worse than 5,000. Differentiated, differentiated into plug-in developers, little packs of blocks that they can choose and actually make a profit or a decent living off of. I don't see. Oh, well, yeah, but I'm no talking. About, I'm talking about free blocks, for God's sake. I'm saying the people. So there's who no money in it anyway, unless they can upsell you on something. I think, I think we're in this conversation at this point, and we we'll move, <laughs> we'll move on to story two, uh, and that's twenty-eight thousand GoDaddy hosting accounts were compromised, and this comes from WordFence, which um, provides a, a very popular um, security plugin in the world WordPress. Uh, ecosystem and also there was a couple of other stories that animator got hacked and i think at one of astra themes plugins very popular plugins got hacked also but i think when a hosting company gets hacked it's um it's slightly even higher than a really popular plugin so what do you reckon about this one Stephen? was you surprised when um, this came on the radar yeah i think that's like a hosting company's worst nightmare right ssh keys getting out in the public like that's unfeathered access or i guess it kind of depends on how they have their uh hosting set up but the one nice thing that you have as a hosting company whereas if you're like a plugin developer like elementor you can release a patch but then you have to wait for everybody to update it and you're going to get sites being compromised until everybody has updated it uh, if you 
you have the servers and you have the credentials, you can instantly lock everybody down, right? You can get rid of the SSH keys from everybody's server. You can refresh them so everybody has to create new keys. Um, so I think, I think it's an interesting, like just because Elementor just got, you know, had a security hole in it, kind of looking at the two different companies and being in two different worlds, your response to that is somewhat different. Um, and how much control you have over your own platform is somewhat different. Um, but it is, I think, worse to have SSH keys get released than, you know, the ability for somebody to which, compromise. Which accounts, uh, which accounts on GoDaddy actually used SSH? <laughs> I didn't realize they did that. Yeah, I, I think it's probably more your, um, at least from what I know of GoDaddy, like your more pro-level stuff. So if like you have an entire server, right? that you've purchased versus just like a site on a server, like you probably, and you're more of a developer level, like you would have uploaded SSH keys to get in and out of that server pretty easy via the command line. So um, it's, it's, I mean, if somebody can take over an entire server, like not just a website or a database, like you can do all sorts of great things or not great things, if you will. <laughs> I love the way you it's say all, It's all a matter of perspective. Yeah. yeah. So where do you reckon, Spencer? GoDaddy, 28,000, 28, like, and they were kind of semi-pro accounts. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always say GoDaddy is the place to go to get your domain name because yeah. of the their system is a, ga- uh, a gauntlet of sales and marketing when you check out. But once you're, like, prepared yeah. to very carefully get through that, uh, the domain name hosting is undeniably the best way to go because it's so But as far as hosting goes, I mean, yeah, you kind of get what you pay for there. And I'm not really sure what happened here, but it doesn't surprise me that since they have such a a large volume business of people that aren't really tech savvy to see what's going on. And to be fair about it, um, whatever was going on, it's not really that dissimilar from all the other stuff. I mean, this this has nothing to do with the Elementor thing, but like we just know about the Elementor and the add-ons for Elementor. I mean, getting hacked is a cat and mouse game, so it's yeah. just going to constantly happen. Well, and, and uh, you know, as I said about Elementor, you know, anything that's popular gets attacked because you want to reach a lot of of people. And GoDaddy has a lot of customers, so yeah. you know they may be more of a target than uh, a company that uh, doesn't have as many customers. And it's you know you can't tell just from the fact that they were hacked whether their setup was more or less, less secure than other people's. We um, we interviewed um, Chris Lemmer yesterday, and he's coming on the show to debate with you, Spencer, about um, hosting. Oh, that will be fun. becoming a commodity in the next couple of weeks. Uh, wait, wait, his camera, he's got a really nice webcam or something. It's got Yeah, like, it's got like the faded background and yep. everything. No, he's using, oh, he's well. using uh, which I'm going to be using next week, actually. I bought one. A 35mm camera? What's he using? Um, He's, I've, I bought a Canon 50, actually. He's probably using a Canon. Right. Uh, he's got, like, reeled up the feel. Like, it's got, like, a huge... This is not a big, big head, though, isn't it? Um, but what the one thing that he said that was really interesting, and I, I, I thought the opposite, he said that the hosting market is, even with big players like GoDaddy, is dominated by thousands of small players. Uh, um, that you know, And I had the totally opposite... Um, that it was dominated by Bluehost and EG. EIG, good friends. From my agency experience, whenever we brought on a new client, 
rarely were they hosted with any of the known players. It was always my brother's friends, uncles, you know, garage owners, you know, hosting company. And I thought, where are these people are just coming out of the woodwork? Like, so just anecdotal experience. I have a just friend a who's hosting it on the computer there. in his office. <laughs> Spot. So uh, it's not it's not unheard of, right? You know, like I think I think maybe ten percent of the clients that ever came in through our doors, which over the six years, probably somewhere around a hundred, maybe ten of them were hosted on SiteGround or GoDaddy or amazing. I, I just I just didn't I just didn't realize that 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 people it was like that. So I learned something yesterday. Well, I think Chris, a lot of people get into like the whole WordPress world from like referrals from friends, right? They're like, Hey, how'd you build your site? And when you start getting referrals from people, like they're like, Oh, use this hosting provider, use that hosting provider. And you end up with this like kind of fragmented thing because everybody's recommending whatever, however they stumbled into it, which was how the last guy stumbled into it. Um, and so when you're like looking, especially probably Adrian's case, right. With, uh, an agency like people who are looking to level up that next level right hire somebody to start doing stuff you are in this very fragmented world right you're getting people from all over the place with all different types of stack on top on a bunch of different servers and things like that and it's a bit like like the last point like on my service we've now got um if they so if they with lifter we install um uh, a theme that we developed internally for lifter and it's all laid out. And they, and they say, well, we don't like that homepage layout. I say, well, you've got Alamator. Get at it. <laughs> Start hacking away at your heart's content. We're just giving you a layout. So you haven't got that blank canvas at the start of it. So um, um, so I think we're going to go for a break. And when we come back, we've got some more stories, listeners and viewers. We'll be back in a few moments. Are you a WordPress consultant, designer, or small digital agency owner? Then you need WPTonic as your trusted white-label developer partner for your next big e-learning or WooCommerce project. WPTonic has the knowledge to help you build out custom functionality that your clients need in LearnDash, Lifter LMS, and WooCommerce. WPTonic is well-known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with a full, no-question-asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Find out how WPTonic's white-label services can help your agency today. Go to wp-tonic.com's homepage and book a free consultation with Jonathan. That's wp-tonic, just like the podcast. Coming back, we've had a, a spirited discussion so far. Chris has been a little bit quiet. I think he's just chilling out on Friday. You've had a busy week, haven't you, Chris, haven't you? It has been a little busy. Yes. He's got some crazy groups on his... <laughs> That's so crazy. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just joined your groups, Chris, just for the sport content. <laughs> uh, um, right, on to story three. ACF blocks provide assortment of blocks built from Advanced Custom Fields Pro. Oh God, um, who to start with? Uh, this is Adrian. What do you reckon on this one? Which one are we looking at? ACF? Number number three. Yeah. Um. Skip me. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Stephen, go on, Steve. What are you reading? Got any views about this one? Uh, yeah. Uh, ACF is, is awesome, and it's really interesting to watch people build stuff on top of it um, just because you automatically out of, the, out of the box get a lot of flexibility. What I think is interesting about ACF and blocks 
is like Gutenberg Gutenberg blocks and trying to make those two things work together is they kind of, I don't know, it feels like they're a little bit at odds with each other as far as when you get to the database and how they're choosing to store data. Like you can make them work, but like from a fundamental perspective, right? Blocks is trying to store all this code um, with these comments around it, right? So they can pull it back out and render the blocks. which is advantageous when you're looking at like site speed stuff or pulling things and storing things really efficiently. Not as advantageous when you're looking for searching, right? If you're trying to do like a complex WordPress query to find all these data points to mash up your posts. Um, And what's intriguing to me is people that are trying to mash these two together. And it'll be really interesting to see where it lands because I feel as blocks keep getting built out, either blocks is going to get better at adopting like ACF type integrations where we're storing things in custom database fields for actual posts, um, or uh, it's going to kind of get more divorced from that and things are going to kind of become harder and harder for ACF to be. Yes. Okay. Here is the thing that people uh, don't expect when they build ACF blocks, which I've done quite a few of. Uh, Normally, you know, advanced custom fields, it creates custom fields. They live in your post meta database Mm -hmm. and that is, you know, good and bad. ACF blocks, like everything else, are stored in the content. The, 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 the data gets stored, you know, not as a separate custom field, um, but as part of a block in the post content field. Uh, well, you, but you still have the post meta, right? Maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but like what's happening is you get two places where this information is stored, right? You're in the content and in the post meta? It's just in the, it's just in the content, like the rest of the oh, really? stuff. Okay. I didn't realize that. That's very interesting. It, it is. Uh, and, you know, it's like, well, it's like the good news is the bad news there. Um, because often people, at least, you know, I had certainly used ACF to build things where, you know, to kind of create something that would, that would make a, a a page layout of a sort. And so the information that was in those custom fields really was meant to be part of the content. But there are other times when you actually want this stuff somewhere separate so that it's yeah. that you can retrieve it elsewhere in the site. And that's kind of like, you know, there's this decision tree about what goes in a block and what goes in a custom post type or a custom field or something. And it has a lot to do with uh, where am I going to display this other than the, the page where I'm, you know, first creating it. So if I was to use ACF blocks and I stored some data and then I wanted to retrieve that data, I would have to query the post content to you find have, that right like, you would have to i mean there are ways to query for specific right. blocks and is this particular block the first block in your post and 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 that kind of thing but it is but it I can't is just different like it's, it, you wouldn't use yeah you wouldn't use a meta query yeah interesting thanks for the thanks for the education yeah i've been upstaged now oh you've been upstaged as well anybody else want to comment on this or should i go on to the next story now it's going to the next story then. All right. Buy Amazon. What do you reckon about this one, Chris? Uh, well, I'm not, I haven't been in the warehouse, but just in a leadership position, I think the main thing we do, whether we're managing a warehouse, managing a company, or managing a family, is about protecting our people from unrecoverable mistakes. That's the most important thing. And uh, you know, the language we use, if we use a word whistleblower, that has one connotation. If we use 
a different word. It has a different connotation. Concerned employee. Yeah. So there's words are very powerful in journalism. So, and I'm just not close enough to this issue to really comment, but I just would say that in these times, um, that's the move, preventing your people from unrecoverable mistakes. So whatever needs to happen and that's what the leaders, the managers, the HR people need to do. And if employees are scared and in fear um, and they're, they're also concerned about losing their jobs, uh, you have to lead through this. And that's not, I mean, that's going to, you know, panic is contagious. So is leadership. And this is the time for companies to step up. And there's always going to be a lot of chaos the more pe- people you put together, especially in a panic. But um, I've, my just main thing about it is go slow and just make sure you don't make any call that's where you're going to put people in a situation where there, a mistake could be made that is unrecoverable. It's one thing to let a kid fall down on a bike and learn, get up and go again. It's another to let them bike off a cliff. So that's it's just a leadership thing. I don't know enough about the details to comment on the specifics, though. Right. So, Adrian, you want to comment on this one? I I I I'm just going to repeat what Chris said. Leader what the one thing I found interesting was that the the author of the article uh was forced to make a decision on whether to sign off on something that would cause employees of his to basically not sort of get any sort of recompensation or 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 justice for their concerns. And instead of kind of like acquiescing and saying, okay, you know, Amazon top press you know, gets the decision here and, and signing off, he chose to just bow out because it was against his conscience. Whether or not that's a, you know, I always find it's easier to, to create change from within than from without. So maybe there was an alternative road or path to be taken here. Uh, but if you're ever in a situation where, you know, you're, you're, you're almost being forced to do something against your conscience, even though, you you and if you leave, you're not going to have the same level of impact on the situation as you would staying in. I would double. I would reconsider staying in because it's e- it's always easier to create change on a certain situation that you care about and that you're passionate about from within an organization than it is to affect that change from without an organization. I Those think are just it my might thoughts. it might depend on whether you've tried to change things or whether. You know, you go in with that. Uh, you go in in with that belief and find that you know what's actually happened a little while down the line is is that you've just been kind of contributing to making the problem worse um, because you can't get anywhere. It's risky. Well, Spencer, do you want to comment on this? Because you, but you had a fair bit to say last week. Or should I go on to the next story? Well, I mean, the only thing I can add to this is that while the specific details aren't known, and Certainly, any company is entitled to act the way they do. I find that there's a good comparison between the the published management style and response of the workers to Costco versus, let's say, some company like an Amazon. Because while I appreciate and really love the the thing that Amazon does, I do find it harder and harder to reconcile how they continue to grow and profit, grow and profit by making full use of all the leverage they have from taxes to exploiting workers to, like we talked about, you know, let somebody build a business. Then once we discover what it is, we'll just step right in and take over with our own brand name. I find it really hard. Like what is wrong with the ethical orientation of the C-suite? It wouldn't cost them that much more, would it? But you know what I'm saying? In other words, what I'm saying is, 
Costco, the two I, I think the problem is what Morton used to bring up. There isn't actually an ethical orientation. But, but, but that's what I'm saying. Look at two companies mm. that are not exactly parallel, but pretty close. Costco is in the same, you know, team level of, of Amazon. Costco has made it their foundational roots to be moral and ethical and treat their employees first, especially the workers. And we never hear anything but praise, even to the extent like recently I saw one of the shoppers at Costco was complaining about having to wear a face mask. And Costco was like, boo-hoo for you. Everybody else is more important to protect than you individually. And so I find it really troublesome that with all this bad publicity and everything, that somebody from Jeff Bezos down to the rest of the C-suite doesn't at least acknowledge like, what would be the cost of us acting right here? Like of just doing the, what we're going to lose like one-tenth of 1% of profit. We already own the whole thing. So that's the part that to me, like Walmart had that issue and still does have that issue. Like they've been company. hiding. That's right. Is, Welcome to the company. Here is your application. For is, is that what's wrong with corporate America in general? Is that we have basically like Aaron Brockovich movies going on everywhere. There's like a good guy company and a super villain company. And that's the only two choices. I, don't I, I think, I think, especially in Silicon Valley, what I've what I've observed, and I, I'm not sure if it's going kind to of penetrated um, a lot of um, corporate America, but especially Silicon Valley, this libertarian um, um, and what was the name Anne Reich? Was it uh, Anne Rand? Uh, well, yeah, Anne Rand. You know, she was a spaced out girl. Uh, um, um, I had the misfortune of reading one of her books. It was freaking painful. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, um, um, <laughs> say the least. I think you read Judy Bloom. I think that's yeah, what I, <laughs> that. yeah, I didn't get very far into Atlas Shrugged, I, I have no, to say. Oh, God almighty. Um, but they really bought into, and they've sprinkled it with a real poison, which is a kind of modern-day eugenics about, you know, the the fittest get to the top and the rest just fall. And they, they've combined It's, it's a it. complete obliviousness to privilege. Well, it's a, and I, I was talking to John about this yesterday, and I said, yes, it's that as well. But what it's really about, it's, um, it's denying luck. Um, as human beings, we don't like the idea. Yes, you need, you need the skills, you need the mental attitude, you need to be in the right place at the right time, but you always need luck, and we don't like... Well, pri privilege that, is that. frequently a matter of luck, right? I happened to be born white in, you know, um, middle America. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, I had nothing to do with that, um, but it gave me access to a bunch of things that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And people go around you know, blathering all about the individual responsibility, blah, 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 in, in complete, like, oblivion uh, to, to the fact that, you know, they're in a position to talk about those things because of a whole lot of stuff that is no credit to them whatsoever. Yeah. Right, let's go on to the next story. Um, it's bullshit. Inside the world of the get-rich-quick world of drop shipping. I did like this one. What do you reckon this one? Oh, go, go on, Adrian, go on. Dropshipping adds virtually zero value to the consumer and 
It's just, a, it's an unsustainable business model that is used for entrepreneurs to tell, teach people how to be entrepreneurs. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of certain types of, certain types of entrepreneurs out there who then go on to train people how to do drop shipping. And then those people fail at drop shipping, but you know what they can do? Teach other people how to do drop shipping. <laughs> We've seen and, this in other areas before. And it's, that's basically the kind of people that, that do shopping. I, and you know what? I have several friends who attempted to do drop shipping, who attempted to start a drop shipping business right. last summer. And they asked for my marketing help. And I'm like, if you want marketing help, look at Amazon. Because <laughs> that's your competition <laughs> if you're entering the drop shipping space. Because Amazon is the ultimate drop shipper. Right, they'll ship you a product from anywhere in the world in like three days or less. Right, and if that's your competition, it takes you like thirty days to fulfill on a product because it's coming from China. What value are you actually bringing to the table for the consumer besides the fact that your ad reached them first? If you're looking to start a business, start a business that brings more value to the customer long-term than simply, you know, ordering 30,000 of a product and then, you know, running out of the product. Like, all right, great. What's the next thing I'm going to sell? What's the next thing I'm going to sell? What's the next thing? Because that's a never-ending process. And, you know, fads change and trends change and all of those things. And it's just dropshipping is not a long-term value-based business. And what you're going to get at the end of your term is you're going to basically break even or you're going to lose money on all of the marketing that you spent, the Shopify charges and whatever. Because at the end of the day, Amazon's got all that business. And the person who also got the rest of your money is the person who trained you on how to do the dropshipping, whatever dropshipping course that you paid for. I think Those are my thoughts on dropshipping. Don't do it. The, the two keys to knowing if any industry is BS is, are there videos with Lamborghinis in the background? <laughs> and are you seeing ads for courses on how to do it every other, like, ad on Facebook? Like, yeah, that's I how mean, you know, like, like, complete garbage. Give up. Get rich quick is bullshit. However you're trying to do it, it, it ain't going to happen. You know, uh, go and find a way to get rich slow. Uh, Chris, don't what, get rich slow, but get rich while providing value. That's the big thing because there's inherently zero value in a drop shipping business because you can't sell it. You can't really do anything with it. The only thing it's good for is being a middleman in between the consumer and the person who's actually producing the product. Yeah, well, I can see where you're coming from, but some sometimes being the middleman, some middlemen have become some of the richest people in America. Right. Uh, but, but, yes, I can point it, it, that out to you, Adrian. Yeah, like, but, you know, yeah. Ta- in context, though, right, if we're looking at the vast majority of the people who run dropshipping sites... Like they, they offer no additional value. If you're yeah, also, at like I, I Amazon, was thinking when was this written? Because I'm pretty sure they're not all sitting barefoot together in a cafe right now. <laughs> I want like to look at Amazon. That's also a middleman. They provide value in like less than three day shipping, and they have AWS. And they have all of these other things and whatnot. But if you're just looking at like your Joe Blow drop shipper, like yeah, they get the product to you, but it takes forever. The markup is insane. And just the like, the list goes on of you know why wouldn't I just go buy this on Amazon, right? If but, if 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 your only comparison is the fact that your ad got to them first, there's no value in that. Right, Chris, would you like to come in? Sure. Um, 
I think we have to be careful to talk in absolutes um, about an industry. The uh, a couple of years ago, I saw a testimonial for Lyft LMS came through, or actually a review on the WordPress repository. A woman named Sarah said, "Hey, thanks for Lyft LMS. It's awesome. I made 300k in 10 months. That got my attention. I bet it did. And I I interviewed Sarah, and she was teaching drop shipping." And she was legitimately getting good results for her students. And she's, you can look at her on her site. It's under the examples deal. But I've followed this, this for a long time. Um, you know, one of the first drop ship courses was by a guy named Anton Crowley called Dropship Lifestyle. And there's this whole like um, Chiang Mai, Thailand, digital nomad thing. That if you want to go way back, you can go back to like Rob... Potts's book called Vagabonding, or you can go to, yeah. you know, around two with Tim Ferriss and, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie The Beach. And there's like this wave of, this is when this entered the, the mainstream, like mind, well, still kind of fringe, but like it became like a thing. You got to get your online business and your info product or your, your agency going. Um, Dropshipping, um, I think there is a choice, like you're talking about, Jonathan, about a a middleman, what I call um, an uh, efficiency gap business. So if you can market and sell and do Facebook ads and Shopify better than like somebody who's really good at making mattresses, sure. Eventually, Amazon's going to eat your lunch. I would prefer if I was going to guide somebody who wanted to develop an online business, who wanted to be location independent, who wanted to be hanging out in the villa in Bali, I would encourage them to make not a business around exploiting an efficiency or an ability that they can have this window of time to outmarket Amazon and instead just build a true innovation that's truly unique. Uh, I whatever, absolutely whatever agree. Like that's 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 where the what where the innovation comes from. That's the difference in between like dropshipping businesses and and I think you know, long-term right. scalable, I mean, I, sustainable I, businesses know, is the innovation aspect. Right. And if, if, if the person who wrote Chris's testimonial was doing something that, you know, actually provided value and it's like, yeah, being a middleman can be a place where you provide value. I mean, you know, if you, you, you go to somebody like an insurance broker because they save you a lot of time in like figuring out what's the best thing to, to work with and to, and to pay. And, uh, so you may have something sustainable or maybe just you were in the game early in this window of time and, you know, you can make money then, but, you know, perhaps even by the time you're starting to tell people, hey, I did this thing and it was awesome and it made me money with with maybe the most honest desire to be helpful anywhere, they don't have the kind of opportunities you did. Yeah, part of the problem is they're training so many people to do dropshipping now. Now there's a ton of people that do dropshipping. <laughs> it's it's very, also, now it's super saturated too. I guess kind of just like roll back a little bit of what I was saying earlier though too is uh, some really large brands have been started by dropshipping. Case in point, like Dollar or Shave Club, right? There was a warehouse with hundreds of thousands of razors. Someone needed to get rid of them. Dollar Shave Club was like, hey, I think I can build a brand around this. And so they essentially started as a dropshipping business and but what's interesting is kind of along the lines of what Adrian was saying too, is if you're going to sustain that and maintain it as a drop ship, you need to figure out how to build your own brand and your own following, which is interesting in this article. The one guy that seemed to be fairly successful has all these followers on Instagram and all these followers on YouTube, right? He has an audience to market his things to. Um, he's built a brand outside of this like Facebook ad that he's posting. And I think 
that is really where you can differentiate yourself, right? Is with that following with that brand. That you I'll, I'll qualify my absolute a little bit because Chris, Chris, Chris and Steven bring up great points. So I'll qual I'll qualify my 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 deep and uh, resentful feelings for dropshipping, is that <laughs> <laughs> it's it's they're they're both both of them are right. It's but it, it's not enough to just deliver the product. You have to grow beyond whatever it is that you're buying off of AliExpress. There has to be brand. There has to be future proof. You have to future proof it. There has to be innovation, and you have to you know it has to become like an actual business because it's it's not enough long-term to just pick up products from somewhere and deliver them to the customer because Amazon does that. It, but like, you know, Dollar Shave Grub is a great example. That is a company that built an entire brand and has a great sales funnel uh, and now has their own line of products and all of these different things going for them and subscription revenue and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are, those are the businesses and that, you know, if you have a dropshipping business like that, that's an innovative you know, that, that's innovation. That's a business plan. But, you know, if I'm buying cheapo earbuds off of AliExpress and delivering them, that's kind of where you're going to get into trouble, I think. But, you know, but I'm, I'll qualify. Yeah, so that's my qualification. All right, then, let's, um, let's drop the, that last story. Let's go for our recommendations. Um, got, have you got a recommendation, Adrian? Uh, no, no, I don't. No. I didn't think of one. And Chris has already run off. So um, I got one. Oh, he's got he one. went to get his recommendation. Oh, my uh, my friend Danny just published a new book. So if you're into the course creation game, oh. it's called Teacher Gift. It's free right now, uh, the digital version on Amazon. He does that when he first launches a uh, a book. But he's a if you're into courses or building a training based membership site, Danny is one of the people as obsessed as I am about the topic, and you can definitely learn some stuff from him. So Teacher Gift by Danny Any. All right, put the link. Can you put the link into the chat yeah. if there's a link to get it? And um, Sally, can you put your link? I know you put it in our Slack channel. I just put it in the chat. Yeah. So what's your recommendation, Sally? All right, I- I'm recommending an interview uh, with uh, Heather Menzies, the fast forward author of Fast Forward and Out of Control, which was written in 1990. Uh, and so the book is out of print and it's hard to, it- it's-, it's hard to get the actual book. But the interview talks about stuff that is definitely still an, an, an issue, but this is the kind of the key quote about it. You know, when people control technology, <clears throat> the technology is empowering. The dehumanizing aspect comes when the organization of technology and its use limits and controls what people can do with it. Um, and that this has been an issue with a lot of stuff that that's, you know, af- affected how things are. Like we invent a new technology and we think it's going to liberate us. Because, you know, in the early creation days, it's completely open. And then it gets sort of adapted and commodified and used to, uh, you know, kind of used to eliminate the the humanity of a a system. And instead, you know, it's like, oh, look, no labor-saving device has ever actually saved labor. Because what happens is that, you know, now you can do, you know, you, you can do laundry in half the time with this machine. Well... That means we expect you to do laundry twice as often. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. Um, Steve, got anything you want to recommend? Uh, yeah, uh, Image Map Pro. I think they have a WordPress plugin too. But about two years ago, I was working on this site that had this really complex like 3D SVG world that you could hover on and get information. And programming that was like... So it sounds a, lovely. A bear. Mm-hmm. 
because it had to be dynamic and stuff. And uh, the other day I stumbled across this Image Map Pro uh, company really and I was cool. just like, man, if I had that two years ago, I could have, you know, doubled my profit on that project. <laughs> oh, cool. All right, put it into chat, will you? Uh, um, Spencer, have you got anything you want to recommend? Uh, there's a free plugin in the WordPress repository called WP-Optimize, which I used for a specific problem. If you've ever installed plugins and uninstalled them, almost always they leave a legacy in the database, empty tables. And that might not seem like a big deal, but imagine if you had like a bunch of drawers and you put your loose change in the drawers. Well, like if you've got a database with tables that are empty but still there, like the database has to work really hard looking for stuff. Like where did I put the change in all this? Well, stuff? and often enough, uh, they're not empty. There's a bunch Sometimes of stuff junk, lurking right. in your options table or, or lurking in, you know, whatever these like, you know, the, the one right. complaint about WordFence is what it does to your database. Right. So in terms of the size and the other stuff, from a backup perspective, having an optimized database is really uh, something people don't think about, but like even the size of your backup, right? A normal database of a healthy WordPress site might be 100, 125 megabytes, but you start to have unoptimized stuff and your database alone could be 250, 300, 400 megabytes and that has to get backed up all the time. Anyway, this plugin was really interesting because it was, um, it, it was very well written, all five stars, and it had almost a million installations, 900,000 plus, but it had like just the basic checklist items that it looks for and it, it, it's literally just, press and go, just say yes to it. So I really appreciated it. And even though they have a pro option to do backups and other stuff, there wasn't like a, a pitch to sell stuff, which by the way, I, I want to make I think they're owned by the same people who do updraft. updraft. Yeah, because the backup is updraft. That's their primary product, which is a good product too. The one thing well, I want to comment- The plugin existed for a while before that and updraft right. bought it. There are a million ways to do this, but I also want to comment on the state of plugins because with this whole Elementor thing, which again, I, I love Elementor. It's a fundamental part of what I do every day. But the Elementor Pro apparently revealed itself this week to have Easter egg upsells that pop up randomly. So heads up to the, sorry, the Elementor free. Heads up to the wise. That's the kind of douchebaggery that really starts to like break down trust with a company. You have a free plugin. You say, do you want the Pro once? You say no, and then Easter eggs start popping up randomly, which is what's happening with the free version of Elementor. Do you want Elementor Pro? This is a good time. That kind of douchebaggery is not happening in this plugin, shouldn't happen in Elementor, and is the kind of thing that when you see it, you start to go like, what other kind of shit are you doing to me? And I really don't understand who thinks that's a good idea in the world we live in. Like, who makes those choices? Yeah. Well, I've got a recommendation and it's um, go to Frank Kern's website. Frank is a really hardcore online marketer and I've, um, I've joined, I periodically joined some of his courses and I've learned a lot from Frank. Um, he's quite blatant. He just wants to make loads of money, which uh, um, I just admire him for his honesty. Uh, um, the only thing is, if you do join any of these courses, you are going to be bombarded by upsells, endless upsells. From, but he does have a lot of really, really interesting free content on his website. So if you want to learn 
something about online marketing from a true online master, go to Franken's website and you will learn something. Each we, upsell we, is a learning opportunity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, does, before we end, I just have, I, I, thought of a, I thought of a recommendation. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, so two weeks ago, we interviewed Ryan Moore at Uncanny Automator, a really, really, really neat plugin. And they just published a blog post on how to connect uh, two WordPress websites together. And I thought this was really interesting because a lot of people are using Groundhog on like subsites or using LMS tools on subsites and they got their marketing site. And it's kind of like this network of websites, they all want to speak to each other. And uh, Uncanny Automator has this really, really neat solution where you can essentially just use that plugin to send information back and forth between those sites really, really, really effectively. Uh, so I linked the blog post to their explanation on how to do that there. And I think yeah, we actually use that people. for when WP Fusion, people often are saying, hey, I have like two, three, four, five sites I want to connect together. And that's fine. You can have as an unlimited number of sites. But if you wanted to, let's say, have your primary site be the WordPress website that sells stuff with WooCommerce, and then you wanted those customers from site A to be put into site B when normally that wouldn't happen, this is one of the ways to do it. There's also another product that lets you do it from the CRM level, which is called PipeDrive, that synchronizes one CRM to another. But th this is a solution that many people actually don't realize they're going to need, but then they end up wanting it uh, because they're having, you know, let's say, multiple websites for one business or something. Oh, really great. We're going to wrap it up, folks. We'll be back next week with an eight, a great panel, some great stories. We'll see you soon, folks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the WP Tonic Podcast, the podcast that gives you a dose of WordPress medicine twice a week.